in the Pacific, territories in Morocco. So Australia used the system of intercepting people at sea and um, taking them to uh, Papua New Guinea, Manus Island, um, and paying the governments um, of foreign, foreign islands to um, hold people in a detention centre. Um, and even people that are recognised as refugees are not in those centres are not then allowed to go to Australia, to the territory of Australia. And this has been a source of great inspiration for the UK Home Office. It's a policy that Denmark are pursuing now. And I think that that um, will be the strategy that they pursue. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm Nathan. Today I'm joined by Dr. Lucy Mablin, who's a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Sheffield. We've invited Lucy today because she's a political sociologist whose research focuses on asylum, human rights, policymaking and the legacies of colonialism. So she's also an author of, of two books and co-authored one other book, Migration Studies and Colonialism, with Joe Turner. So she's written Asylum After Empire, Post-Colonial Legacies in the Politics of Asylum Seeking, which won the British Sociological Association's Philip Abrams Memorial Prize in 2018. She's also written Impoverishment and Asylum, Social Policy as Slow Violent. So welcome, Lucy. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today. Uh, that's that's brilliant. Um, you're you're joining us whilst Britain is currently reforming its um its asylum policy, and a Home Secretary who appears to be driving a coach and horses through the 1951 United Nations Geneva Convention on on refugees. Your your books are, I found reading your books very fascinating and very interesting. So I want to take us back so you can connect for us what connects Britain's empire and its colonialism with contemporary asylum policy. Okay, that's a, a big question. Okay, so the 1951 convention is um, a kind of reference point by which people make claims for asylum in Britain mm. and this is a convention an international convention which was part of the broader human rights kind of set of um, human rights agreements in the middle of the 20th century and those came about because uh, millions of people were displaced um, during the Second World War, mm-hmm. particularly European people were displaced, and when they were um, when they fled their country and went to a, another country, they found that they didn't have any rights at all because most of our rights come from being a citizen of a particular country, mm-hmm. and so they had no recourse in in a foreign country 
to claim any particular right to be there or stay there or or live or have housing etc it was up to the kind of kindness or discretion of that state mm-hmm. and so the convention and the human rights conventions generally were meant to rectify this they were meant to put a kind of umbrella above national citizenship laws national laws and rights and give people protections just because they were human beings mm. so that sounds really nice and kind of um, humanist uh, and kind of thinking of everybody as equal. Mm-hmm. But in fact, at that point in time, um, the most powerful states in the world weren't states, they were empires, like the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want all of the people living in their respective empires to have access to human rights because they didn't see them as equal human beings, either as in a kind of staged way as not being ready for human rights Mm -hmm. or just not being people they would want to have rights. And in part, that's because that would make them, those states automatically, those empires, massive human rights violators in relation to forced labor and, and other aspects. So during the convention negotiations on the right to asylum specifically, um, there was a lot of discussion and debate and tense conversations because there were many formerly colonized countries at those negotiations, like India and Pakistan, who were also dealing with massive uh, refugee situations of their own, you know, like the partition of India caused one of the biggest um, migrations of the 20th century. So... They were arguing that the idea that there are only European refugees in the world is a, is a fantasy. We're dealing with these massive refugee situations. Why would you have human rights if they were just for some people, um, for, for European people? And they were kind of making the case in explicitly anti-colonial terms against having a really narrow definition of, of who, uh, in the case of refugees, who could be a refugee. But they ultimately were not successful in um, overturning, um, well, it's a kind of complicated negotiation history, but ultimately there were, a, a, a clause was inserted into the Refugee Convention called a Territorial Application Clause. Mm-hmm. It was originally called the Colonial Application Clause, Okay. but um, it was sort of rebranded um, through some uh, sneaky tricks and the territorial application clause got through and that didn't talk about colonialism but it just said that a state could apply this wherever they would like um but also that a refugee was somebody who was um fleeing europe before 1951 so the suggestion here is that um right from conception from the beginning of the drafting of the 1951 convention that it was uneven and yeah. that their the colonial powers uh, sort of framed it completely on their terms. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I have to be careful when I say, you know, this is an international law and it's the main kind of international reference point for refugee rights. But actually, most, like many countries in the world, are not sig- signatory to the Refugee Convention. And most mm. countries that host most refugees in the world are not signatory. Right. But in the case of Britain, this is the... The kind of key thing we did sign up to it were part of the negotiations and ratified it um but on the basis that it would not apply to people from outside of europe so 
Then um, things continued in the post-war period, and in 1967, um, there was growing um, desire in the world for a convention that would be more expansive, particularly the African Union wanted to develop a a large-scale convention of their own, and there was concern in the UN about competing conventions, and they um, eventually agreed to open uh, that the convention up with a, an extra protocol, which would mean that anybody could apply for the right to asylum. Mm-hmm. So Britain wasn't very keen on this, but it wasn't a massive problem for them because those people that it sought to exclude weren't um, in any large number coming mm-hmm. uh, to, I mean, Britain was still an empire at the point, but to the metropole. Um, to seek refuge or from former colonies to seek refuge. They were introducing other laws which turned citizens of the Commonwealth into migrants that denied them the right to travel freely across the empire, particularly to um, the British Isles. But in relation to refugees, it wasn't a massive problem that this had expanded um, because most refugees were thought of or thought to be white and Soviet and uh, relatively small in number. Okay, that's but, that's fascinating. So, <laughs> so talk to us then about how asylum rose to be an issue of great political significance, and when the British public started to take um, an interest, or sort of a public interest type thing, and when media coverage begins to grow. Mm. So, I think it's fair to say that the British public have not particularly led you know even at the highest numbers of people arriving in the recent past i mean historically Mm -hmm. there have been kind of gigantic waves really really high numbers you know sort of twelve thousand belgians seeking refuge after the great war kind of very large numbers but even in the numbers that we saw in the early 2000s the public haven't really led the the moral panic. I think it's fair to say, no. as you mentioned, the media have been key in that. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, the numbers of people seeking asylum in Britain who were from whatever kind of symbolic geography you want to use, former colonised countries, the Third mm. World, the Global South, a different profile of people started to claim this right to asylum, to travel to Britain and, and um, exercise their right to claim asylum. And this led to a massive moral panic in the media. The phrase bogus asylum seekers was in the newspapers, the tabloid newspapers all the time. And the government came under really significant um, pressure. So the assumption was that there was an increase in the numbers of people seeking asylum. And because of the kinds of countries that they were coming from, because they were poor countries, even in spite of the fact that those were countries that were um, at war and in situations of mass displacement, that they couldn't actually be refugees. And so they must be bogus asylum seekers. They must be economic migrants in disguise. Mm -hmm. And we entered this uh, period where I think there was something like 10 rafts of primary legislation from 1993 onwards, which slowly closed down, slowly eroded the right to asylum in Britain. And I can go into some of the things that that involved if you want, although I'm sure your listeners are 
very aware of that. No, I, I, I would like you to go to go into that, Lucy, because we what we want to do is is we want to trace the journey of how we've arrived at this point where Pretty Patel appears to be doing what she's she's doing. So, what significant changes in legislation happen, which sort of erode people's rights to claim asylum over maybe two decades? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, this is not a comprehensive list, but, mm-hmm. um, so there's a definition of a refugee in the Refugee Convention, but it's quite broad and loose. Mm-hmm. So, not states can decide how they interpret that. So, okay. over several series of legislation, that definition was um, made narrower and narrower, the interpretation of that definition. So, somebody that might have been successful in applying for asylum in, 1995 with the same case would be much less successful in 2015 say then um, appeal rights um, were slowly um, decreased the conditions um, that people who had made an application for asylum were made more and more difficult so um, there was a process by which um, they were moved out of the mainstream welfare benefit system the right to work was removed in 2002 for the vast majority of people in the asylum system. That parallel welfare system, then rates of support went down and down and down. So now they are pegged at what the poorest 10% of British citizens spend on essential living items only. So it's well below, well below the poverty line. Um, dispersal was introduced so people couldn't... Um, cluster in the London and the Southeast, so people are forcibly dispersed around um, the UK. Um, Then the housing that they were dispersed to was outsourced to private companies and became increasingly low quality. Um, Detention, the detention estate was expanded, deportations expanded reporting was introduced so like um if somebody's on probation they have to report at a police station on a regular basis that was introduced for people in the asylum system as well Mm -hmm. um yeah a whole range of things that aimed to oh so i've missed out an important tranche of things actually which includes things that prevent measures that prevent people from arriving in the uk so if you've arrived in the uk it's your right Mm -hmm in law in international law and then as transposed into british national law that you have to be able to apply for asylum and have that asylum that application assessed so if you prevent people from arriving then they can't claim that right so carrier sanctions were introduced so that people um so that airlines or uh, ferry companies would be fined really big fines if somebody traveled without appropriate visa documents which is actually in violation of the geneva convention because obviously logically you have to be able to travel without proper documents if you're um fleeing persecution so um carrier sanctions were introduced so it is much cheaper for somebody to uh fly from north africa to into the european union of course it's not that expensive mm-hmm. you'll pay 10 20 times that amount thousands Um, of euros to get in a tiny dinghy and risk your life across the Mediterranean. So that's because of carrier sanctions and it's the same situation in the channel. Um, So border controls, British controls at the French border and at airports around the world and those kinds of controls which prevented people from arriving. So they targeted 
preventing people from arriving if they were here then diminishing the chance of an asylum application being successful and making people's lives as hard and horrible as possible while they were waiting for the decision. And that's what that legislation did over time more and more and more. It began with the new Labour government really in most intensively when they were under this tabloid pressure around bogus asylum seekers, but it's uh, sort of re reaching a crescendo now with the um, new plans for immigration that you mentioned earlier. Hmm. So historically, what do you think drove politicians to become um, not compassionate at all uh, towards people who are in the main seeking sanctuary? Was there something in in this dispersal that you talk about that people were no longer like located in, in London and the southeast and were now being moved further north into the Midlands and into the north of England? Was there something that constituents were going to politicians and talking about large numbers of people arriving and does that trigger the change in policy because it does seem quite harsh these changes that are made yeah so it seems harsh to to you mm. from the perspective of someone that sees people as as human beings who should be respected and treated with a basic level of dignity. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably two things in your question there. One is, did it cause problems sending people who were fleeing persecution, who had been through terrible journeys and were trying to build their life, but may, may or may not have spoken English and had all sorts of challenges going on, mm -hmm. and then placing them in some of the poorest, most deprived neighborhoods um, in the country where they may, not always, but they may have um, experienced a lot of racism and hostility as well as the kind of general poverty, um, mm. because this is a period of kind of an intensification of neoliberalism and the marginalization of of communities and disinvestment and things like that. Yes, that caused lots of tensions and difficulties at, at local levels, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that response is what drove the intensification. I think when I started doing the research that became my book, Asylum After Empire, so I started that in around 2009, I think I was looking at the sort of policies that had been going on for 10 years or so at that point in, in quite a well, kind of bit longer probably 10 or 20 years but in increasing intensity and I was sort of thinking so my interest overall is what what do they think they're doing how do they imagine the world that they think that this is a reasonable thing to do in our name with mm -hmm. our money why do they think what how do they imagine our our country and who we are mm -hmm. and and the world beyond in in order that they want to do these kinds of policies and I think I started off thinking about that in the present mm -hmm. and like you say, kind of uh, sort of legitimate concerns or something, I don't know. But when I started then to, I think I, I decided to spend a few months just reading back over um, books of historical books of research on immigration policies and that started going into colonialism and controls of mobility around the empire and things. I just started to realize that this isn't about 
something that has happened in the present that we can sort of rationally or economically explain. It's okay. the something, there's a logic underlying it, which means that some people are not viewed by the British state as properly human or properly owing a level of respect and dignity that we would expect to be paid to people that we would expect with like within the scope of this do you, right do you think that that's that's a legacy of, yeah, of British Empire think- in that in early conceptions of of humanity and deferential rights that people were given in that there were hierarchies that were created in in the colonies which placed Europeans um, in positions of privilege and the the indigenous local people who were mostly black and brown weren't weren't treated equally yeah it's like exactly and it's like in short it's racist but Mm. I didn't want to just think it's racist in a presentist sense. I really wanted to understand where those kinds of logics and ideas came from, how it becomes possible to think of. So like flipping things is quite useful. So like if Mm. there were French and German people drowning in the Mediterranean in large numbers and you removed search and rescue missions and you started arresting fishermen who rescued drowning people, French and German people they found in the sea. Mm. It, that's just un, utterly unthinkable. So it's like I, I wanted to kind of go historically into those kinds of lo- kind of hierarchical logics um, that governed in governed the empire and think about how they were playing out, how they made particular policies or actions in the present re- seem thinkable seem reasonable seem plausible Mm. um why would it be plausible that this increased numbers of refugees will not be seen as a refugee crisis but as a crisis of bogus cheating people trying to cheat the system um and you know when when you look back in that history particularly about migration you find a long and deep history of controls of the mobility of black and brown people around the empire of the creation of papers and passes for particular people to control their mobility and permit it or prevent it of um, physical inspections in ports medical and um, kind of um, papers and documents and examinations in ports preventing people from docking or living in particular places um, and the kind of forced mobility and then constraining of mobility across like right from the period of um, of plantation slavery mm-hmm. through different stages of the empire. And so once you sort of dig into those histories and learn about them, mm-hmm. it becomes really difficult to start to say, oh, but this situation you know now oh no racism doesn't exist or something mm-hmm. now and it's it's all must be a separate reason there must be some good or better reason like it's too expensive to support mm. refugees or whatever i just don't i don't buy that i i just see these logics continuing over time and i, I don't think it's a situation where 
it's straightforwardly getting worse. I think it's the things that we see now, which seem bad, are kind of within the logic. It's almost more of a blip that we had any period in which we had um, policies which would support people um, seeking asylum. Mm, so we we see these um, colonial legacies um, enduring, enduring to the present day uh, government's legislation, which results in in some people who've arrived from the Caribbean being being deported, and this Windrush scandal, where people who absolutely have the right to be here because they are British ending up being deported but this is a, a legacy of what you trace back to to the colonial system yeah so so Theresa May right mm-hmm. creates this hostile environment mm-hmm. this word phrase it's first used really to be thinking about creating a hostile environment in which people seeking asylum are living mm-hmm. That then gets expanded out to incorporate increasing groups of people. And initially, it's aimed at targeting uh, so-called illegal immigrants, people who are residing in Britain without appropriate documents or visas. Mm -hmm. As this um, logic expands, the state seems to simultaneously have this amnesia about the fact that before 1981, there was no citizenship of of the British Isle, of this kind of particular territory, you would be a citizen of of the Commonwealth. So all of these people who are citizens and should be um, not subject to immigration controls Mm -hmm. start to be wrapped up in it. The Windrush scandal, and there has been a focus on people from the Caribbean, but it has also, you know, affected... people from South Asia and various other groups as well. Um, And I think that's part of the way in which those kinds of, uh, uh, this kind of hostile environment, these kind of home office logics, Mm. they're um, the, the kind of structurally racist logics built into them start to capture more and more people. But then what we get in the aftermath of it is the kind of um, Windrush lessons learned review and lots of hand-wringing and tears about how this could have happened. Mm. Um, Literally simultaneously, as in the next room or even some of the people in the same team are designing the new plan for immigration, which basically removes the right to asylum um, in Britain from people that arrive uh, themselves right spontaneously or independently so those dots are not connected up that it's a, a systemic institution-wide logic which start, is starting to wrap up more and more people and that that's fundamentally a problem not just it's not just a problem because it accidentally captures the wrong people mm. and you need to make sure that it's more robust it's it's fundamentally um, a problem that doesn't seem really to be part of the discussion about Windrush. Hmm. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Do you, do you think um, the reticence of the British government to include colonialism in in the education curriculum? Do you think that you can connect that to what currently happens in institutions now? 
Are they reluctant to do that because they can see that people will be able to trace in the way that you've done? Yeah, well, of course, we don't know our own history. Mm. So I'm sure that you growing up in Zimbabwe know way more about the history of this country than I learned at school. So you learn, you know, a set of histories about some kings and queens and elite people and some Vikings and things. Mm. But at no time, I think I was well into my 20s when uh, out of my own interest, I started to learn about the actual history of Britain and the colonial history and the empire. You know, it's like 500 years or so or more right up to the present day we're still you know was it 81 or something like that that hong kong was made independent there are still all of these um like smaller islands uh, that still are under british jurisdiction i mean there's so many aspects of your life of you were talking earlier before we started recording about the names of streets and things in mm. um in Zimbabwe, but also here, the names of streets and uh, scholarships, the road scholarship, the statues mm. of people, all kinds of um, parts of our, our history and our contemporary experience. Um, they are kind of um, somehow left uh, unexplained. It's just a really strange amnesia and and i don't i'm not privy to any discussions about education policy so i know Mm. in this particular moment we are in a kind of intense backlash against black lives matter and so the discussion about why we just definitely should never ever teach empire in schools or whatever but we don't know if we ever have any particular um moment and i think that is a really significant um problem Mm-hmm. Most countries do teach in school a celebratory nationalist history, don't they? Because you're making good yeah. citizens who think that your country is great. Yeah. I guess that's partly it's the point. Isn't education? It's a kind of na- history in schools is a kind of nationalist project. So you'd have to transform the idea of why people in learn history in schools. I guess before you could then yeah. transform what is actually taught. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do wonder, um, moving on to Pretty Patel's new immigration plan. Uh, having looked at it, Lucy, what aspects do you think in that plan, are there any that are good that you would celebrate, that you'd be like the government is in some way actually doing a good thing? Because we've seen... The channel crossings, which are, I find them very difficult to watch, particularly when I see women and children in small little dinghy boats. And it's a tragedy that there isn't a a safer and, you know, safer route for people to arrive here. What do you make of that, that Pretty Patel in trying to stop those boats coming has arrived at a set of policy proposals, which are very interesting in that she wants to reset, focus more on resettlement rather than allowing people to just arrive here and, and claim asylum. Yeah, so the government have created the crisis which they're now claiming to solve. Right. So 
more people are all around the world when you introduce very strict border controls that which prevent people from making safe and legal routes to claim asylum you end up with death and violence at borders people die in deserts and seas and on razor wire etc so the juxtaposed controls that were introduced a number of years ago in france and the increasing um, policing of um, lorries and carrier sanctions for lorry companies and all of those kinds of um measures and various other controls which mean that it's difficult for people to get to the uk mean that um a business model is created for smugglers effectively mm. so the only way that people can travel is through so-called illegal routes through dangerous routes um and then we see these images on tv and we see people dying often on tv you know there was one in january and it was a kurdish family and i think they had maybe all drowned, even a baby. Mm-hmm. And nobody on any coverage that I heard mentioned anything about the situation of Kurdish people. And why Why would a Kurdish family be making this? So it's always kind of completely removed from the situations that people find themselves in. So the new rules, instead of saying, oh, lots of people are dying, what can we do to prevent people from dying? Um, the supposed solution is then uh, a kind of illogical solution is then to remove the right to asylum for those people that arrive themselves so now we'll only have a right to asylum for people that are selected from camps in regions of origin Um, and these are kind of UNHCR resettlement places they're like lottery tickets you know you go on a list and it's just um, a lottery and particularly if you're identified as very um, vulnerable or if you're disabled or if you've got like a particular vulnerability mm-hmm. you may have a better chance but yeah it's I think 3,000 people or something came to the UK on that mechanism last year so um, and the, le- the legality of this Lucy given yeah, Britain well, is a, is a you know. yeah Britain is a signatory to um to the, the Geneva Convention, Geneva Refugee Convention of 1951. What what could happen there? Could we see a lot of lawyers challenging the, the whole government policy in the courts? I think that we will, and I think that that has begun. Um, but what I think is going to happen hmm. is that, so people won't stop arriving, because there are people seeking Mm. asylum. They will continue to come. You don't make invisible people away, make them disappear by pushing them back. People still will still arrive. And the initial plan of the Home Office was that you would then send those people back to other European countries. You know, we're quite geographically remote as a country. It's hard to Mm. get to the UK. So often people have traveled through other countries. The initial plan was to send people back to those countries Um, But all the European countries have said that they will not be making any deals to do that. And I've been told by people in the Home Office that they knew that that would they knew that would be rejected. So then they're able to go to the automatic place of of Plan B and Plan B is offshoring asylum in the kind of Australian style system. So placing people who have arrived spontaneously in offshore detention for their applications to be processed. And how, how would that work? Have you gleaned anything about where these so, offshore centres would be? 
So the only things that we know currently have been leaked to the media. Mm. Um, and there's a combination of um, kind of things nearby, like disused ferries, disused oil rigs. And then um, former colonial islands in the Pacific, territories in Morocco. So Australia used the system of intercepting people at sea and um, taking them to uh, Papua New Guinea, Manus Island, um, and paying the governments um, of foreign foreign islands to um, hold people in a detention centre. And even people that are recognised as refugees are not in those centres, are not then allowed to go to Australia, to the territory of Australia. And this has been a source of great inspiration for the UK Home Office. It's a policy that Denmark are pursuing now. And I think that that um, will be the strategy that they pursue. But I also think that will be subject to significant legal challenge. The Australian um, case was, has been, they don't allow human rights observers into those detention centres. They've been closed down various times and then reopened. My concern is that once you make something like that thinkable, even if you challenge it and get it closed down, once it's sort of thinkable, it's difficult to make unthinkable again. Um, but I think they may be, they'll get a few years out of those detention centres before the legal challenges are potentially successful and, and something has to be done. So I think we're at a really, really terrifying moment in this. It's it it's felt for many years like it couldn't get worse, but I think this is a really dystopian fascist proposal, which is is difficult to find a hope in. Yeah. Mm. And I've got a question that I've thought about. And I've tried to figure out how to ask it very carefully. <laughs> given, given you've written a book that um, looks at the aftermath of, of empire and how you connect that to asylum policy, I, I find it very curious, and maybe you, you could enlighten us a bit about this, is the... The current holder of the the Home Secretary's office is a woman of Asian origin whose parents are came from the colonies from Uganda and were forcibly displaced to come to Britain. So I've tried to think about this like and with some depth. I don't understand how it's possible that a a woman who has that kind of origin is the one who gets to implement this. Does she arrive at the home office and there are options that she's asked to pick? Or do you think that she's dreamt this up herself? Oh, I mean, you know, I haven't interviewed Pretty Patel and I don't know. (laughs) her personally or her motivations in life I think people have mentioned that her family would not have been able to settle here um, under these kinds of rules Mm. although they you know Ugandan Asians had British passports so Mm. there is a 
different sorts. You know, they weren't straightforwardly refugees in that sense. Mm. So I don't know. We have to be slightly careful about those histories, but yeah. Um, I don't. From the evidence that I have, I don't think that um, this is something that was in train before she was Home Secretary. I think that Home Secretaries have a lot of power in driving forward the agenda. Mm. And I think that she has been very keen to push forward as part of the broader government Brexit um, strategy, a post-Brexit immigration plan that pleases conservative voters brexit kind of favoring voters i don't know if there's a a complex answer to this in relation Mm. to her personal history or if we can just think of it in terms of her own ambitions for maintaining her own and consolidating her own power Mm. um but I mean, it's certainly the case, it's certainly not the case that uh, people not being white means that they won't be racist or they won't, you know, impose these kinds of logics on other people who we might imagine that they would have solidarity with. Like, historically, that wouldn't be unprecedented. Mm. Um, I I asked that question because you, if you you look at, yeah, you can, sure. I just, I, I think the important thing is not pretty Patel, though. Mm. I think if it were, if it isn't, it's a bit like Boris Johnson. Like, mm. if you just get rid of one of these people, they're like seven-headed monsters. You know, it's the, the point isn't the individual person and saying they're evil or somehow unusual and and it's all their fault. And if they weren't there it wouldn't happen or something. I think the the point is something, and the problem is something much worse, which is deeper and systemic and historically rooted, and it's about um, British, uh, English nationalism, e- either even amnesia of empire, about a whole kind of worldview and a way of, of representing and understanding other people in the world in relation to us, which I, is embedded in all of these things we've been talking about in asylum, across the Home Office, in Windrush, in a whole range of different institutions. Mm. And they're not like get rid of Pretty Patel and it'll all be fine. They're like generational battles that will go on beyond our lifetimes that need a whole different way of thinking and talking about these things, which aren't, there's not, no quick solutions. So there's, there's, no, there's a lot of complexity in this. There isn't a, there isn't a simple answer. There are a lot of things that, that connect. I, I guess I, I asked the question because um, being Zimbabwean myself and coming from Britain's lost colony in Africa, I, I have a different worldview and the way that I, I see Britain. Um, it's interesting that some of the most significant changes that are ever done have a black or brown face. 
So I, I wonder whether I'm, I'm making connections which aren't there. Um, but superficially, at least, it's, mm. it's extraordinary and remarkable to me that a woman who's, who's Asian and can be traced back to Uganda, even though she, they did have British overseas nationality passports, is capable of effectively ending people's ability to, re- to to claim asylum here other than resettlement do you think that when we look back into the history of empire hmm. we see figures like that we see figures like many, pretty many Patel. people are complicit in hmm. those agendas of of controlling mobility and maintaining hierarchies and often out of self-interest. I think that's not, as you suggested, not historically unprecedented at all. Right. It's a shame, isn't it? It is. It's um, it's curious, and it, it would be interesting to, to sit in front of Pretty Patel and to sort of try and understand how she... How she would defend these these changes. Um, I do wonder, though, yeah. Lucy, about about people who seek asylum in Britain and how they're seen. Do you do you think there it's plausible to suggest that um, some people's humanity, in that the the extent of the changes that are coming is at best seen as somewhat ambiguous, given the history that that Britain has. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to look at these proposals and the thing, the things that are being proposed and imagine yourself in that situation of, of seeking asylum and then being faced with this mm. treatment and this injustice and not thinking that you would feel like they didn't seem to recognise you as a person as a person and therefore and that it was dehumanizing um and i i think even though it sounds very sort of overly dramatic to say that um that some people are not viewed as fully human or whatever that sounds like a really like dramatic Mm. hyperbolic thing to say but then when we look at the kind the way that people are treated and responded to and not just treated with active violence but also allowed to suffer and drown and are neglected in squalid camps in northern france and all of the kind of various things that are systematized um around the world not just in britain it's really hard to see that that doesn't come from a place, a kind of logic where those people are not seen as worthy of of the same level of treatment um, mm. as as British citizens or citizens of other places. There seems to be a kind of willingness to degrade and injure and and ruin people's lives without that being something which is even embarrassing. It's somehow a point of pride that you would be controlling your borders and being very strong on that. Um, And on the Pretty Patel point, you know, she probably would make the distinction between 
illegal people, like in this new plan for immigration, illegal is one of the main words that comes 74 times in the document, mm. more than anything to do with rights or human human rights or anything like that. So she possibly distinguishes, I don't know, in her mental gymnastics of how, how she can go to sleep at night, then that this is, that she was not illegal and that these people are illegal in some way. I think those kinds of words, again, are ways to legitimize a sort of dehumanization where you um, abstract people suffering and then it somehow becomes justifiable. Hmm. And given all, all of the policy changes that, that are coming, Lucy, before we, we conclude, um, do you think the, the Human Rights Act will, will survive on the statute book? God. The, the, the Conservatives have been talking for a long time about getting rid of the Human Rights Act. Um, and, you know, as I'm really critical of human rights in many ways because they were explicitly racially exclusionary from their inception in Bern. So there's really problematic in lots of ways. But at the same time, human rights are literally the only, not just discourse, but the only thing physically holding back some of the worst excesses of... Um, of various governments around the world, even though they do seem to railroad them when they feel like it, as in this case. Mm. Um, so since it's the only solid thing that we have, I do want to keep them yeah. uh, while, while we're trying to work out something um, more uh, inclusive. But um, I, don't, I don't know if, human right, if a Human Rights Act can survive Brexit. I think that that was one of the, uh, as much as Europe is, a, is the European Union mm-hmm. is really bad on all this stuff, on asylum, on quarantining people outside of Europe, externalizing asylum and denying the right to asylum and everything. There are um, some, some things like the human rights framework, which mm-hmm. do hold states back from their worst temptations um, of cruelty etc and I, I yeah I am I am concerned that um, the Human Rights Act won't survive so one of the things that I read in a document when human rights were first being proposed mm-hmm. and each state who was a member of the UN had to submit a statement on what they do about human rights how they have rights in mm-hmm. their country and how it's kind of relates to their own national culture and the British um, the British submission said, you know, because we don't have a written constitution or anything, said yeah. that the understanding of rights is so innate in the British psyche <laughs> that it doesn't need to be written down anywhere. <laughs> um, and I would, that's the kind of thing that can imagine the kind of reason being used as an explanation why we don't need this stupid set of human rights which holds us back from doing important legitimate things like deporting foreign criminals or whatever reason they Mm. use um, because we have an inherent understanding of rights and dignity Mm. we don't need these kinds of problematic um, laws to to hold us back from doing the right thing Um, I can imagine that, that sort of argument coming out today I think but you are a lawyer, so you probably know better. Do you think it will survive? <laughs> um, I don't. I, I don't think it will survive. I think what they'll do is they'll bring in a a bill of rights that only yeah. protects citizens, 
um, I, I suspect that that's the journey that they're, they're going down. And, and finally, um, Lucy, and it's been a really fascinating conversation with you. Um, what do you think the impact of this new immigration plan that, that Priti Patel is bringing will have, will have worldwide? Because Britain has a lot of influence. If it succeeds, what do you think that will do? And what do you think the status of of people who will successfully make it to Britain's shores, what kind of future do they face here? Yeah, well, for a long time, Australia were a sort of uh, unusual case with their offshore detention system that could be sort of looked at and pointed to as a particularly dark and terrible thing that was happening on the other side of the world. I think now with Denmark and Britain moving towards, so the EU has been moving towards these kind of approaches by stealth. Mm. Now a more explicit um, move by, by Denmark and the UK, I think it is, it is damaging. I think I can't see it not being damaging it's not like, um, you know, if you think about these things in sort of temporal times, mm. they go fast and slow and there are moments where the rolling back of the right to asylum accelerates and then it goes slower for a while and then there are these punctuation moments mm-hmm. where, um, where it gets worse. I think that we are in a really um, bad moment, things moving forward very suddenly in in the wrong direction mm. really fast and I, and I can't see that having a positive effect but Britain isn't isolated in this it's put part of a broader trend um, and it's the kind of action that a lot of states around the world would like to take so I would imagine we'll see a slow um, cascade continuing in the same direction uh, I think one of the things that I'm most concerned about mm. is is the sort of, um, so because of dispersal, NGOs have popped up all over the UK where people have been dispersed to, new organisations, people Mm -hmm. are given refugee status and they start new refugee organisations and there's a vibrant sort of, you know, cities of sanctuary and things and a lot of those things are run and kind of organised and pushed forward Mm -hmm. um, by refugees Mm -hmm. themselves. I am concerned that uh if you start removing people to other locations islands and things that those organizations that are organized around supporting people at the grassroots Mm -hmm. start to dissolve and so the networks and the um the resistance the grassroots kind of resistance movements of agitating against these things lose it kind of I'm worried that over time it will lose um lose something that it was won't exist in the same way and that then it becomes more and more difficult to mobilize and resist around mm. um around this offshoring like that it almost becomes a kind of um positive loop where it speeds up and you know if there are fewer I don't know immigration lawyers could we're dealing with asylum the kinds Mm -hmm. of organizations that start to get behind challenging these policies Mm -hmm. i'm concerned that that will 
that thing that's been built because people are here um, will diminish and that's really scary like the resistance is the only thing now that sort of keeps you sane to be thinking but people resist but people agitate yeah they um yeah yeah it is is really really not just depressing it's really scary what's happening Mm. and the changes are so far-reaching do you think um a government of a different color if ever it came would would you know remove all of these changes or do you think they'll endure um i don't think the left or the right has been very good on asylum Mm. um historically Mm -hmm. and i don't think the left or the right is automatically anti-racist um so I can see a situation where offshore comes in and there is significant objection and a gov- like a Labour government or something comes in and closes that down. Mm-hmm. But the sort of dismantling of this um, whole system that we'd like to see, I don't think that that is going to be led by the state. Right. I think that dismantling is the kind of thing that is led by social movements, by connecting the this with police violence and Windrush and a range of things that are happening and a kind of tipping point of not tolerating that system anymore. I think that it can only come from below in that way. I don't think it's going to be led by the state or by a government. Mm. Um, But we're in such a particularly populist moment. It's also difficult to think beyond that sort of populism as well, I think. Yeah, so no. maybe, maybe something in the future. We have to yeah. assume that things will happen that we can't currently imagine and continue as though yeah. something different will occur, don't we? No, that's... Otherwise, why, why continue? Yeah. No, thank you so much, Lucy, for for talking to us today and for bringing so much insight and um, for the fascinating books that you've, you've written. I would encourage everybody who who listens to this uh, podcast to, to go out and, and get Lucy's book and um, it's, it's a fascinating read so, so thank you so much thanks, thank you so much for inviting me it's such a Thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that Carag does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk, where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.